are listening to the new Fiction Talks podcast by the Center for Fiction. I'm Noreen Tomasi, Executive Director of the Center. Fiction Talks features new, exclusive interviews with award-winning novelists, as well as remastered recordings of literary giants who have appeared here at our space in New York City. I'm here today with Kia Corthran, and we're going to talk about her novel, uh, Castle Cross, The Magnet Carter, which won our 2016 First Novel Prize. There's so much to talk about in this book, Kia, that I wondered how to begin. But one thing that I am very curious about is this is a very ambitious novel with a grand scope, beginning on the eve of World War II and going through 2010, involving two very different families, a white family in Alabama, two brothers in that family, and two brothers in a black family in Maryland, and many other things, the issues of disability, the is issues of queerness, all of these things come to bear on the, on the narrative. And yet, a great deal of the book is in dialogue. So I was particularly interested in how your experience as a playwright and screenwriter informed you, helped you, or held you back when you sat down to write a debut novel. You know, in some ways, uh, I remember when I, when I first started to write it, I got the idea about a year before I started writing it, um, like the spring of 2009, and I started writing in the spring of 2010, which is basically the climax, which I don't want to divulge. <laughs> and <clears throat> and I wanted the events leading up to that. Um, I've often told people there was a very brief moment in history where it might have been a novella. <laughs> and that was because it goes through the lives of four men, boys to men. But originally, I just wanted to explore the events leading up to the climax and what would possess one person to do that. So of the four, it was only going to be one of those characters. Uh, and then I realized how important the person who is the object of what this done, how important he is as well. And then in exploring where they came from, then it became about their families. And ultimately, then it became about brothers because I wanted to, you know, start where it all started. And um, I was, I had just opened a play in New York. I say that it sounds really casual, like, like I do that every year. Believe me, I do not. But I happened to in spring of 2010. And I had this retreat, the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts. Actually, I love going to writing colonies and I had won this award it's um it's for people that had never been there before so it's like an award for excellence in the arts a free retreat which I split it into two retreats because I was there for this award and I shared all my playwriting stuff I realized I had three weeks like this is the time I could write the novel if I'm going to do it now I had put it aside because I got distracted by a play and I was doing this and that but I also realized I put it aside because I was terrified to write a novel because I'd never written a novel before I had no idea it was going to be this big epic novel but any sort of novel but then I thought okay now's the time to experiment and see if I'm going to go through with this I wrote the novel, even I kept making it up as I went along, but I wrote it almost all in order with the exception of I had the white family first and then the black family, but I actually 
originally, the first thing I wrote was the black family, the black children. And then on the, actually literally starting on the train coming back from Virginia, I started, because I like to write on trains, the, um, the white family. So I started Randall there. But yeah, after I really got into it, then I got really obsessed with it. And it, in some ways, there wasn't a lot of difference except that I had this whole big open space that I could really explore the characters um, from their youth through through old age, as it turned out. Did you have a, a vision of Elliot as a young boy, or were you walk, working backward, or where did you enter that character? I should say, for those listening, Elliot and Dwight are the brothers who grew up in Maryland in the black family, and Randall and BJ are the white brothers who grew up in Alabama. I think I liked the idea of this child who was so hyperactive. I also liked the idea, as I went through, because I think people change through life, that for pretty much all the characters, when there's a time a lapse and then you come to them later in life, they're completely different than what, when you saw the last time. And I and I liked doing that because I think people change so much and there were these gaps and so those changes could happen. I wanted one of the Black brothers to be gay and I made decisions about that. Partly I settled on Dwight because of events that ultimately happen and um, <clears throat> with Elliot. And I didn't, frankly, I didn't want it to confuse that of it being related to him being gay, frankly. So I chose that Dwight, the older brother, was gay, which was actually a perfect choice because he was an adolescent. So he would be um, much more aware of it than Elliot as a small child may have been. Both Randall and Elliot are quite bright as small children. Luck, circumstance, tragedy, whatever leads them in two di very different directions in their lives. But they're very yeah. verbal and engaged. And you feel their intelligence is very alive and very lively in the beginning of the book. And BJ is obviously silent. He's deaf. And his younger brother leads him into speech through sign language. Yes, he's 18, and, um, and the, the, the book actually begins uh, with Randall teaching sign language. So it's, uh, it begins with uh, BJ coming into language. So, and Randall's about in eighth grade. Yes, he's 13 at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And then Elliot's much younger. He's, what, six years old. Elliot's voice is just astonishing, the voice of this hyperactive little boy with this incredible curiosity. The reader falls in love with him immediately. He's such an incredible character, such a memorable character. But all the voices are very distinct in the novel. The cadence of the way people speak is very different. Even later on, when Elliot is an adult, the people he surrounds himself with, you can understand something about them just by the way they speak. And again, I just want to flip back to your experience as a playwright. Uh, sometimes I find as a reader, that the sound of characters' voices can be somewhat similar in a novel, even in a novel I love, and doesn't have that distinct feeling. Do you think that is very much influenced by your experience as a playwright? or Probably. I mean, it's probably why I became a playwright, because I can hear voices really well. You know, it's interesting, uh, this topic, because I was interviewed by someone in December uh, a month ago. She was a, a black woman who's also a writer, a fiction writer, 
writer about being surprised by my writing dialect and actually surprised that she liked it because I think she had been sort of taught or sort of avoided dialect and would somehow be suspicious of that. And that, you know, maybe that's something sort of the avoidance of dialect Maybe that's in vogue in fiction. I didn't realize. I mean, one thing about coming from playwriting and this being my first novel, I didn't know any rules, which is another reason why it became such a big book. I didn't know the rule if, as a first-time novelist, it's kind of hard to get published with a huge book. Like, I didn't know any of those rules. So I guess I broke them in that way. And I always write dialect because of writing characters with plays. And, and I write working-class characters, but everybody has a dialect it's just if it's perfect grammar then somehow that's not called dialect it's all dialect so yes one of the things that struck me about the book was how well structured it is for a debut novel because that's unusual we have this first novel prize we give it every year and we receive about 125 novels from publishers a year. And first of all, let me say that it makes me feel good about the state of the world reading these novels because there are so many wonderful writers. But one of the problems that you often see in a first novel is that the writer doesn't know how to structure the novel. Um, But that's not true of your novel. You feel a strong structure throughout. And I wonder how you approach that and if you, how you set that up. Do you write like Doctorow, you know, do you know that um, quote of his that writing is like uh, driving a car through fog on a dark night and you can only see as far as the headlights in front of you, but you keep going? Or do you very carefully structure it ahead of time? Are you one of those writers who has charts on the wall? And <laughs> and so can you talk a little about the problems of structuring such a long and such a complex book, really, with so much going on in it? The only thing I knew when I started was what the climax would be. And even though, as it turned out, and I, I sort of figured everything out as I went along, a little more than half the novel are their lives before the event. And then there are two big sections that probably reader, readers have a sense that something happened because it comes a bit of a mystery, but they're not sure what it is. And then comes the climax, which, um, you know, which goes back in time to the uh, earlier section. And then, of course, the 2010 section at the end. So technically, even in writing chronological order, a little more than halfway, I could have written the climax then, but when I decided to keep going to further into the future in the years after the climax, it's almost like I needed all that information about the characters before I could go to that place because the, the place was so harrowing. So I, I remember being at this other retreat, and I was writing the largest section, which is uh, the Indianapolis section, the Elliot adult section. Uh, oh, every day I would write a chapter in my notebook longhand, and then at the end of the day, in the evening, before I went to bed, I would have an idea for the chapter of the next day, and then I'd write that chapter. And so what had happened was a friend of mine that I met at that very original retreat when I started writing, and she's a poet, and we've stayed friends, 
something awful happened because that summer she and her uncle took a trip to Italy. It was going to be two or three weeks. And on the second day, they both find out her mother has cancer and they have to come rushing back. And then it was very uh, sad over the next few months when her mother would get better, worse, better, worse, and then finally passed away. But anyway, so my friend was very much on my mind. She was in the middle of that at this time. And so, for example, I'd written a chapter, and then one night at the end of the day, I realized that character's mother's going to die suddenly. And, um, and it sort of came from that. The interesting thing about that character is while I'd written many, many chapters about him, I felt like it was in that chapter that just came because it was, on my, you know, my friends on my mind that I really found him because I found his vulnerable place in that wasn't so much there before because he's, you know, keeps it very hidden and sort of. Elliot. Yes, for Elliot. Yes. Yes, I knew that I had finally <laughs> found this character because it was the first time where I thought, oh, maybe I don't want to do the climax after all, <laughs> which of course been ridiculous because that was the whole point of the book you know that thought lasted like two seconds it wasn't real but it was important because it I because I realized I did have what I needed you do know how many writers would be so thrilled to lie down in their beds at night and have the idea for the next chapter occur to them I didn't (laughs) read it it would be before I went to bed it would be before you went to bed but it's a pretty great gift so you're not actually waking up in the morning with that dread of the blank page you at least have a place to put your pen well you you know what I feel like though because I was so obsessed with those characters it's almost like having fan fiction of my own novel or something yeah, it's interesting you say that that um, many writers would admire that because I sort of think I sort of think writers probably have a hundred ideas of where it could go, but it's just like picking the right one or something. Once you once you really get into the characters, a friend of mine, a um, a, di- a director friend, a theater director friend, I ran into him not long after my book was released at a theater. We'd just seen the same play, and he said. He was 20 pages away from finishing my novel. And I was, you know, really pleased. My novel was still new. I didn't even know he was reading it. And he said something interesting that he was feeling um, this real sense of it having been written by a playwright, not just because of the dialogue, but because conflict and climactic moments. (laughs) And so, you know, it may be... You know, sometimes, if anything, I have to pull back from being too melodramatic. Like, everything becomes very dramatic. And I think that's part of my uh, my playwriting. I mean, the big thing with this novel was I, I just felt that for the climax to be effective, I have to take the reader to this place where they really, really know these characters and are really attached to these characters so in some ways, I wasn't completely always thinking, okay, everything has to go towards this one moment because the main thing was I just wanted the readers to really, really know them as, you know, not in any sort of distant way. I mean, I think there's definitely a way you can write a novel and, and the reader can maintain an, an interesting distance. But with this novel, I thought it was important to, to put them right as if they really knew these characters. I think that for me as a reader, the book continually broke apart my preconceptions of what 
what the reality of certain people's lives might be. And for me, actually, that was especially true with Randall and BJ and the environment they grew up in. And I realized I have certain notions of who a man like Randall might be that the book took completely apart. Good, and good, s- and good. so I think that that was a very important thing for me. And it's and so what you are trying to do works really well, that in these encounters we have at the end of the book, you are already inside these characters and you feel that you know them and you love them in a way. And if you don't always love them, you at least understand them in some deeper way um, outside of your original notions of what they would be. And for me, that was the really astonishing thing about the book. And it seems as if you set out to do that so that when we got to that place later in the book, it would really affect the reader deeply. I mean, I can understand your impetus at a certain point to say, Wait, wait, I don't want that ending anymore. <laughs> I don't want this to end. But that was a good thing because yeah. it showed that, okay, okay, if this is bothering me, it will affect a reader. If it's affecting me, so yes. <laughs> but I think the difficulty is creating that kind of empathy. So the book works in an interesting way that life, especially now, doesn't seem to be working in very effectively. <laughs> You know, so we're we're in an environment right now where people seem to be divided by their superficial notions of who other people are, even to the extent where, I mean, this is a bad example, but, you know, can I sit down and have dinner with and understand someone who voted in a way different than me in the last election, you know? And so it's almost as fundamental as that. And I think that a book like yours with that kind of sweep is really important right now. But when you are writing, do you think about those social ramifications? Did you have in your mind, I'm writing a big book. I'm writing a significant book. I'm writing a book that I want to have a kind of societal impact. Or were you focused on story more? I I was just focused on the story. Um, I wasn't thinking about it having a societal impact impact. There came a point where I thought, oh, this is a really good book at some point. Um, I wanted to write a good book, but it was better than I thought it was going to be, I guess. And I think that was partly because I was so obsessed and I did uh, so much rewriting. I I went through three drafts before anybody saw the first word. And um, I get my sister, who's also a writer, and some friends. So I got some feedback. Um, One of the most wonderful people was I, through connections, met somebody. I've only met her by email, but we've become such good friends over email. Her name is Iris Kinley. She lives in Florida. And she was my deaf reader because I really wanted um, someone deaf to read it. But I didn't realize that I got something else that was great. I got somebody who didn't know me at all to read it because until then... (sighs) It's hard to get a stranger to say, can you read a thousand pages for me and give me feedback? You know? So it was so generous that she did it. I, I did think the issue that I was addressing was very important. And the central issue, there's lots of issues in the book, but the one with the, the climax, again, because I didn't know it was going to be so large. And also I didn't know uh, 
what was going to happen. I was making up this, I went along, but I had no idea everything that would happen because I go through so many decades of, you know, 70 years and a lot happens in that time. There's, you know, civil rights, but gay rights and abortion. I mean, there are so many things that, that were just natural uh, issues that were in the world at that time. And so as it went on, I was thinking it's more significant, I think, than I thought it was going to be at the beginning. It's also interesting that the plot hinges on the sets of brothers. Can you talk to me a little bit about that, why you chose that, rather than, say, a sister and a brother? Or There are many important female characters in the book, but the four major characters are men, and there are two sets of brothers, and I wondered what led you to do that. You know, I'm not sure exactly how it came to me, but, I mean, I knew, you know, the original person from the white family and from the black family would both be male. Why I chose it to be about brothers than, say, a sister and a brother, I'm I'm not quite sure yeah, somehow instinctually it felt that it would be ultimately about choices that men would make at the, or, or choices they wouldn't make. You know, if all of it took place in the 21st century, maybe it would have been women because it wouldn't be as much a divide between women's choices and men's choices. But being mid-20th century, I think there was something that felt instinctually to make it a little more parallel with, um, yeah. I think writing about power and violence in America. That could have been it, because, well, I would like women to have more power, uh, especially in the 50s and mid-20th century. That wasn't the case. And also the kind of violence that runs through the book. I mean, it's in the later part of the book, but it's that undertone of violence is, is there even very early on in the book, is about, to a large extent, male dominance, male jockeying for position, male sense of self-worth. Yes, I think it's all that. I think also because I started in their youth, Randall and BJ have a sister, but I feel again in that age, and you know, there was the 1940s, her interests are different than the boys' interests, the brothers' interests. And so, I, yeah, I, I think I just like that idea of parallel and th- that her choices would definitely be different than Randall's anyway. I mean, obviously, BJ is going to be too because he's deaf and that's about him coming to language. But I think it did have a lot to do with starting in their youth. I wanted to switch for a minute to your writing for television because you've done some of that. And right now, the topic around every dinner table, and most of my dinner tables are filled with readers and writers of fiction, um, always seems to turn to TV (laughs) and a discussion of what long series someone is watching and are these shows the new novel and have you seen The Night Of? Have you seen All of the Wire? Have you seen... And I wonder if writing for television in any way connected to the experience for you of writing a novel or was it much more connected to Mm. playwriting? It was much more. Because first of all, I've done very little TV. I did 
I did a pilot. There's a short-lived series called The Jury, and then I did an episode of The Wire. And then actually The Jury, I did an episode of that. And I'm, I am not a TV watcher. I didn't watch The Wire. They asked me to do it um, based on a play of mine that they'd read. I, I think there actually is a lot of good TV out there now, but I don't usually see it because I don't watch TV. Part of the reason I don't watch it is because it's so good that I don't have time to sit and do these marathons that people do of TV because it's so good. But I don't think it's the new novel. And I don't say that is better or worse. It's it's, it's its own entity, just as novel writing is its own entity. Were there writers from either the world of theater or novelists who really inspired you or who you had in mind while you were writing this novel? When I was writing it, very close playwright friend named Naomi Wallace, who's, oh, you know Naomi? She, <laughs> she I know her work. In. Yes, yeah. yes. It's wonderful. <laughs> but she grew up in Kentucky but lives in England because her husband's British. And I visited her uh, in this farm in northern England. And I've done that a couple of times. And she likes me in the house because then she's more inspired to write. And we go up on her our places and write. And while I was there this time, I was there for a couple of weeks. That's when I was writing the first draft of the novel. Actually, when I went there, it was the first time I went back to start the second draft of the three drafts I wrote before I showed anybody. And um, so I wrote the first line. I got the world. I wrote it in her house. I always tell her. But one afternoon, we decided to take off of our writing and we went to the Bronte house because she lives like 40 minutes away, right? Which was fantastic. Now, until then, a lot of people will want to hit me for this but I had not read the Bronte sisters I just thought oh aren't they just old romances and that didn't sound interesting to me but after going through their house and seeing everything about this tragic family then I started I read Wuthering Heights I read Jane Eyre and then I read Villette is that what it's called it's Jane Eyre blew my mind, right? <laughs> like, it was so amazing. I mean, they all were amazing in different ways, all, all three of them. And I still want to read Anne. I haven't read her yet. But Jane Eyre was just so incredible. And there was a, a moment in that, because I wasn't thinking particularly of writers when I was writing. I was just thinking of the story, really. And the Maryland part, by the way, is very much inspired by my hometown where I grew up. And, you know, sort of some of my memories and also my what my mother would say, because she grew up in this small town too, and it's more her generation. The part in Jane Eyre, it's when she first meets Rochester, and she's in his house, and there, and he makes her come down. He brings all these party people to stay in his house, all these rich people, and he makes her come down. She doesn't really want to, and and she kind of sits in the corner. I always pictured it was like a window seat, because I know it's like in the corner. She's trying to sort of hide, and all these rich people in the party, including his fiance, and by this point, they've met and already had this electricity between them, but he says his rich fiance coming in, they all start talking about all the nasty things they did to their governesses growing up. And she is presumably mortified, but Charlotte Bronte does not go back to Jane Eyre. But I'm feeling all this anger, right? Because I hate these people, right? Finally, Jane runs out into the corridor and Rochester meets her in the corridor and says, why are you crying? And that's the first time that there's information given to us of how she feels, even though we were feeling it for her. It was a really wonderful lesson because it made me conscious of the fact that just like in plays, when I can be very settle with the language and just trust the audience is going to get it and the actors and all that, that I can do that with a novel too, that I don't have to spoon feed the information. So it was a really great lesson as, as I tell people, that's where this 800 pages of subtle came from. <laughs> <laughs>
So given all this, I know you're doing some things in theater right now. Are you working on the second novel? Yes, I want to. I want to. I've been doing some research for it, and I'm going to McDowell at the end of February, and I want to do some work there on it, yes. And will it be set in the 21st century? Do you want to know the truth? I I have a couple of different ideas, and so I haven't completely sure which one I'm going to go for. One of them is actually much further back, and one of them could be more contemporary. But right now, I'm keeping it a secret till I figure it out. (laughs) You talked about the Virginia Center, and you're talking about going to McDowell. How important is that to you, this experience of working in writers' retreats? I love just having um, the distance from my New York life, and it's just completely focused on the work. The, the first time I went to one of those, which was Hedgebrook, the women's retreat in um, north of Seattle, and somebody had suggested, it was like 20 years ago, and I thought, okay, that sounds interesting, but I didn't really get why people do these things. I didn't really get the point of it because I was thinking that's not going to get my play produced or this, and I was very careerist. And then I got there, I thought, oh, I get it. You can forget about your career here. It's just about writing, just about the work. That's what I love about it. And that's when I can completely fully focus into the the world of the characters because my brain is completely in that. The last time I was at McDowell and I was doing sort of final edits with the book and it's funny because it is in the country, in the, you know, the woods of uh, New Hampshire and you can build a fire and all that. So it should be relaxing. I came to dinner every day like burnt out like because I really was working all day but but it's okay that I slept it off and was fresh the next day mm-hmm. <laughs> you know you were part of a group of pretty extraordinary finalists for our first yes, novel I guys. Know, I read them. yes I read them all yes <laughs> because I'd read their work and could talk with them about it it's kind of what the U.S. is you know like so many diverse voices is what is the most wonderful part about this country, you know, that we had that possibility. So I'm not hopeless at all. (laughs) (laughs) That's good to hear. (laughs) I think we all have to be not hopeless going forward. Anyway, thank you so much, Kia. It's great to have this opportunity to talk with you, and I hope we'll do it again soon. (laughs) Thanks, Thanks, Noreen. (laughs) 